0: I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as as Well, well. where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like.
1: Explained half as well as you deserve.
0: Okay, starting a new book. We are finally in The Return of the King. Uh, We read chapters one through five.
1: Minas Tirith through ride of the Rohirrim.
0: Exactly. And I absolutely adored this section i i think this might have been my favorite section so far not that it's necessarily like the coolest stuff happening but the way it's written really engaged me in a way that i i haven't felt engaged in a while
1: yeah i'll say because i was a really big fan of the end of the two towers and i really love these early chapters of return of the king there's just something about this part of the book where i feel tolkien was just at this point firing on all cylinders he knew what he was going for now in the beginning of the fellowship of the ring we kind of see like he was still sort of struggling like how much like the hobbit is this going to be right it was still very much like that and he was writing about how well
0: it was very much switching between silmarillion or hobbit and yeah now those things have merged really nicely yeah
1: I mean, yeah, and a long-expected party almost feels like an epilogue to The Hobbit. Absolutely. almost. But then as the story goes on, you know, it gets darker and more uh, into the writing that we know as how The Lord of the Rings goes. But even still, uh, you know, the later half of Fellowship and the earlier parts of Two Towers, it still felt like he was still trying to figure, now that he's in this more serious epic than The Hobbit how he's going to write. And I just think it's all coming together in these chapters.
0: In the writing community in modern day, there's a a difference between pantsers and plotters, which is, whether you approach your writing process with a, a, a drawn-out outline, which of course makes you a plotter, or you write your story by the seat of your pants, which makes you a pantser. Um, I don't know what Tolkien was.
1: I was going to say, I think he was a pantser. Oh, like,
0: okay, cool.
1: I He, you know, from the letters I've read, it seems like he's like, I didn't really even know who strider was when i came to the breach he seems like a guy that like he writes these and then like he's like well now i need to who is this character this This is lovely this idea came to me and now i need to like roll with it and see where that
0: i think that makes a lot of sense honestly um i i love that (laughs) i'm a pantser so i i really appreciate um that and uh but even if he was a plotter. Everyone kind of comes to a point in their writing where they don't actually know how they're going to solve all of the problems that they've created for their, um, their characters. And when all of that aligns and, and when they know, it's usually before they write it, but when they know how that's going to be solved, writing just flows. And I, I definitely feel like that's what's yeah. happening in this section. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think Tolkien was someone that kind of allowed his imagination to go a little bit, but then he just wanted from there to let the logic of the story to take over and to guide him. Like, the way he set up these characters and these situations, how logically can this portray? Especially with the vast history he's built in the Silmarillion. He set this universe with these rules, and now he's just almost a slave to this world he's created. So I think at this point, like you said, like he's really kind of like locked in this right. is where the characters are going and there's really kind of no room uh for doubt and kind of like I said in the stairs of kirithungul chapter at this point like everyone's fate's sort of decided the the board is set the players are on the chessboard and now we're playing according to the rules of chess
0: and just to tie back in with what i was talking about another term that's thrown al- around a lot is a gardener which is someone who plants very uh etched out ideas at the very beginning of a story and then lets it go um and and watches it grow as they're writing the the plot
1: yeah so yeah. that and that i'd say that's sounds... definitely i think and that's very fitting for yeah <laughs> story about yeah. gardeners and yeah stuff saving the world before we actually get into the meat of the story i do want to talk about the narrative choice that tolkien has utilized a few times already to jump back in the story mm-hmm. and it's becoming more frequent which i think is uh, another reason why i'm enjoying these chapters a lot you know, all throughout The Fellowship of the Ring, it's all happening in the present. And it's not until, I think, the Urukai chapter, where we kind of take it, go back a few days to see from Merry and Pippin's point of view. And then we don't get it again until The Taming of Smeagol, when we go back to see Frodo and Sam after the breaking of The Fellowship. We have that Flotsam and Jetsam chapter where we do see the Battle of Isengard, but mm-hmm. it's being told in the present right. to our characters. It's not like a jump back.
0: Right, right, yeah.
1: And now we start off with Minas Tirith, and it's already a jump back. And then the next chapter, Passing of the Grey Company, is another jump back to the end of the Palantir chapter. And then later, the muster of Rohan is another kind of, in the ride of Rohirrim, are these jump backs. So, in the Fellowship, we had that none. In the two towers, the entirety of it, it only happened twice. And now in these first five chapters, it's like we already get like three or four of those. Right. Um... And now we have all our protagonists split up into different areas. So we're jumping all around and the story is just moving at a rapid pace right now.
0: Yeah, this is something I really appreciate as a fan of modern fantasy um, that is multi-perspective. And I definitely (laughs) am more attracted to this type of storytelling than just like, here is this epic. Um, You and I watched a TikTok today, which just kind of uh, parodies... The Fellowship of the Ring is just like, most of it's walking.
1: <laughs> they're yeah. just going to
0: walk and walk and walk and walk. That's pretty funny like to me yeah. because, yeah, I, I agree. And not that great things don't happen while they're walking um, and that great There's writing. There's not story development. Yeah, it, it, and yeah. You're, not, you're not as engaged in this kind of world view from, mm-hmm. from above of what's going on and, and understanding that. And I, I think while I didn't grasp that in our last episode... This time I really felt like, okay, it's all coming together for me. I am envisioning the world. I can see these players on the
1: map. Right, yeah. So do we want to jump into chapter one? (laughs) Sure. Um,
0: (laughs) Ten minutes in? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: So yeah, Menace Tirith. Um, We're cutting back to Pippin and Gandalf right after they just took off like a bullet. After the end of the Palantir chapter, where Pippin came face to face with Sauron.
0: Yeah, Pippin is pretty weary in the first part of this chapter. He is clearly affected by his interaction with the Palantir. He is suddenly alone, no other hobbits around, and um, doesn't really know what's coming up next.
1: Mm -hmm. And I, I just love how much of a whirlwind the beginning of this is. It also lends a little bit to the speed of shadow facts yeah i mean yeah. he really is this um specially ableed. very special unique horse <laughs> yeah. that is descended from like the lords of horses i, I think shadow Fax is the closest thing we get to like a modern car <laughs> in this world <laughs> where it's like everyone's riding at normal horse speed but gandalf on shadow is able to traverse crazy amounts of distances
0: and Pippin's kind of falling in and out of yeah, consciousness. Yeah. He's, he's sleeping a lot on this journey and, uh, you know, waking up when they, they meet people. Um, but then they finally make it to Minas Tirith. Right. Um, and
1: we get introduced to one of my personal favorite characters, um, the lord of Minas Tirith, Denethor.
0: And you've said, like, a lot of people don't understand when you say he's one of your favorite characters. But I, I have to say, I, I do think that... There's something special about Denethor that we haven't seen yet in this story.
1: Yeah, um, and and I think a lot of that reaction is colored by the movies, which I think of of, of all the changes from book to movie, uh, Denethor's characterization is one of the biggest flaws of the Peter Jackson movies um they do such a poor job of representing his character.
0: Yeah, disclaimer overall. I feel like we're going to talk a lot about how terrible the movie section of this <laughs> yeah. part of the book is um just because it is very different.
1: And, and like I try not to do that unless it is like a very like Yeah. If you've only seen these movies, like do not think that you understand Denethor cuz like it's just, <laughs> he's just, he's just, he's not in the movie at all.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Um so Denethor is a really shrewd man is how I would, I would, um, say him. One of my favorite lines in this section is that, uh, when Gandalf is explaining to Pippin that they're going to go (laughs) meet Denethor, um, he says, you know, Theoden is a, is a kind man. So it was, I wasn't worried about coming across him. Denethor is of a different kind, which I, I think is like a perfect description. It's not that he's evil. He's not bad, He's not on the side of Sauron, but he's not a kind man. He's just a dick. He's a dick. <laughs> and like, he's, he's just shrewd and conniving. And he has his idea of what is right and lovely. A lovely part of this section is that I think we are presented with this character of Denethor. We see his flaws immediately. And within a few chapters, he's going to have a kind of comeuppance, a very clear change of heart.
1: Yeah, I think shrewd is really uh, the way to describe him. He doesn't really care if he's liked or not. He just wants to... Hold secure Gondor in these waning days where he's fully aware these could be like the last days of Gondor. Yeah. And I think there's in the appendices, there's this account of uh, the history of Gondor and the heirs of uh, Anarion, Asildur's brother. And then after, you know, they fail and then the stewards line takes over and it kind of gives you this historical account of the stewards all the way through um, Denethor. And this is what it has to say about him. Thus pride increased in Dinothor together with despair, until he saw in all the deeds of that time only a single combat between the Lord of the White Tower and the Lord of the Barad-dor, and mistrusted all others who resisted Sauron unless they served himself alone. And I think that really gets you into Dinothor's frame of mind. He sees everything in a, either... You serve Sauron or you serve me, right? Absolutely. Because I am holding the front line. This is really how Boromir saw things at the Council of Elrond. Mm-hmm. Gondor is the ones uh, saving the rest of Middle Earth. So aid Gondor, or like, are you Parish. really helping at all? <laughs>
0: Perish with Sauron. Yeah, like yeah. the
1: the fates of Middle Earth rise and fall with Gondor.
0: Yeah, I honestly, you know, in in many other books or just in. Whenever I watch, especially superhero movies, Denethor is the type of character that I cling to. Um, he is logical to a fault and uh, almost logical to a point of illogic and yeah. uh, Machiavellian to a point of just alienating his greatest allies, uh, which we will definitely get to later. Yeah, I, I love Denethor. And I think what is really interesting in this part is that Pippin steps up in a way that we have not yeah. seen before from his character. All, all
1: the Pippin and Gondor stuff is really the evolution of his character from Ark. I mean, it sucks that he's separated from Merry, but I think that was kind of necessary Absolutely. for him to really step into his own character.
0: Yeah, and he's the youngest of the hobbits. Yeah, So this is his moment of of really... Stepping into something different and it doesn't take much for Pippin to like swear his fealty to this steward and Gandalf is very much taken aback by the whole situation.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and Boromir's sacrifice had a huge impact on Pippin. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and, and well, now you have Boromir's father questioning him almost in a very suspicious way, like Faramir was questioning Frodo.
0: Right, like, why did you leave him Like, behind? as if you had
1: something to do with it, and, he, and Pippin wants him to know, like, no, I honor the memory of Boromir. So he is, you know, it, it, it's very quick for him to take offense at that, and then to yeah. be like, hey, I will swear my service to you, his father, because I wouldn't be alive if <laughs> yeah, not Yeah, he's him. sort
0: of like, uh, I was kidnapped by orcs, so I... I couldn't do more than I did. Yeah. Once Gandalf and Pippin are out of the presence of Denethor, Gandalf sort of explains to Pippin, like, hey, I know you're in service of him now, but we've got to watch our backs here. And and you've got to find more information out than what you give to him.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's like, just be wary around him yeah. because... Again, the whole reason Gandalf picked up Pippin and really hightailed it to Gondor, which has told an unfinished tales more, and I wish it was fleshed out a little more here, is that after finding out the connection between Saruman and Sauron with the Palantir he fears that Denethor has been making contact with Sauron. Mm. And he is like, does not trust him. He's like, wow, Theoden fell to the influence of Sa- Saruman. Sure. Maybe Denethor, like Sauron, has fallen to the influence of Sauron.
0: Yeah, that's not a an outworldly thing to and, think. And I mean,
1: we're really seeing this from Pippin's point of view, which is why I don't think Tolkien included it in this part of the story, which is where it's like, his uh, structures of writing the story are so true- to a fault of the characters where it's like, we yeah. as the audience are not in on this because Pippin isn't in on it, but it's a very crucial piece of information. I wish we knew.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think something we uh, talked about last episode was the idea that some of this feels just like Tolkien's notes. It, it doesn't even feel like
1: it was supposed to make it, it was into supposed to make it track. in the book.
0: It, it feels like his, his admin notes about where they are, when whatever um, this section has the opposite problem where where we're not getting any of that this is cut all the
1: fat it is only like the juiciest uh, yeah this is the
0: part that can like be turned into a play or a movie very easily which again is so crazy that this part is so different than the book in the movies
1: oh totally um like I said, I think that this is when Tolkien was firing on all cylinders. I think he's at his best when uh, he's writing dialogue. And I think that dialogue is best when it's verbally sparring characters. Like Gandalf and Denethor or Gandalf and Saruman in the voice of Saruman. I I just love this very biting, cutting uh, dialogue. These back and forths.
0: Absolutely. I, I think as we watch Pippin go... And wander through Gondor and and kind of find his place as a follower of Denethor. Um, we get to see just a lot of interaction that has been lacking in, in the story so far. Yeah. Honestly, I haven't seen this much interaction with just like general other people since we were in Bree.
1: Yeah. I, I love how much we could just see the people of Minas Tirith in this, Um, whether it's uh, Baragond. Yes. Uh, his son, Virgil, or I really love the scene where they're watching the um, arrival of the Southern Lords of Gondor. Uh, Like Forlong the Fat and uh, Prince Imrahil, who will become very important, of Dal Amroth. And, um, you know, it it serves a couple purposes. A, we're just kind of getting to see like the larger, you know, what Gondor is all about. Um, But B, it's also showing us what's happening in the south of Gondor Yeah, with this massive fleet being built up and the people of Minas Tirith are commenting on how few people have been sent north to help them defend the city because they're too busy having to defend their own fiefs in the south. And that'll be really important later on uh, in the Battle of Pelennor Fields. But um, yeah, I just love how much world building we're getting now for Gondor, which is a country we have heard... So much about, yeah, but we have never actually been to until <laughs> yeah. this chapter. Actually,
0: yeah, and I honestly the the description of Minas Tirith drew me the fuck in this layered tiered city with different gates. Yeah. Very engaging.
1: I love the uh, the the heel of rock that's thrust out, on, and it's described as a ship. Mm. Um, and if you know, if you see the movie, you know what I'm talking about. That big, it, it right. looks like the prow of a ship, and I think that's great because. Gondor was founded by um, Sealdor and his brother coming out of the sea from the sinking of Numenor mm,
0: right. on
1: these ships. So I love that their city uh, visually uh, draws to mind a massive ship coming out of the mountain Mandaluin. Well, we can move right on ahead to chapter two, The Passing of the Grey Company. Again, I think this is another banger chapter. You know, the first chapter kind of takes place immediately after the Palantir chapter. This chapter right. also takes place immediately after the Palantir chapter, but from Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli's point of view. As they're passing back from Isengard into Rohan, our heroes are overtaken by these writers in the night. And it's at first very ominous, but then uh, we realize that they are from the north and from Rivendell.
0: Which I love this. This is something missing from the movie entirely. Um, very very lovely to me. I I to to be able to see Strider in his kind of environment with his like kind.
1: Yeah, I mean cuz at this point Strider's the only ranger of the north we've seen. Uh, we've heard about these people when in the Bree chapters, but um you know, Aragorn's been on this massive journey and he's been having to think beyond just like the North realm. Now he's thinking a lot about Gondor and rohan and the war with sauron and this chapter really reconnects him with his roots yeah um eladan and Elro here he grew up with these guys arwen's brothers and we also just get a sense of the other rangers as well and um these are the people that aragorn has been the lord over for years now um we i think we forget that you know even though he's not king of gondor yet he's still been chieftain of the Dúnedain. Mm-hmm. these are his people right And we hear about uh, these words about uh, Malbeth the Seer, too, which uh, one thing I just wanted to say, I've heard some Tolkien fans say that, you know, one thing they like about Tolkien is that it's not like other fantasy stories in which it's like the chosen one trope. But I I do dispute that a little bit because of like here (laughs) um, and also other things like um, Boromir and Faramir are given this vision with these words about the halfling forth shall stand and... Um, Frodo is, uh, compelled, even though he doesn't want to, to take the ring. And now we're hearing about this old Dunedain prophecy about, you know, uh, no one shall pass the paths of the dead. It's totally
0: a chosen one story. Until
1: the one who will become king comes. And it's just like... Yeah, it's like Aragorn and Frodo are the Chosen Ones.
0: I think what's significant is he's doing that before it was like a trope in modern fantasy.
1: Yeah, I just think people just forget about these parts in the story. Though. Yeah. Um, Because it really is like the rangers come down from the north and they're like, hey, remember Malbeth the Seer from back in the day and this old prophecy? <laughs> yeah. And it was like, oh, this describes Aragorn. Okay. Right. So then they go back to Homes Deep and they get ready that night and... Aragorn goes up into the tower and they're getting ready to leave. And they're like, where's Aragorn? And he comes out.
0: And when he comes back, he is changed. He is older. He is haggard. He is very much affected by what has happened, which we then find out that he looked into the Palantir, as he has right to do, as the rightful owner of it. Um, And he met with Sauron. Um, and challenged
1: him. And challenged
0: face. him. And I, I think this is something I'm. I'm actually so mad again that this isn't in the movie because, um.
1: Well, it is, but not in this place in the story, and it doesn't unfold like how it happens.
0: Right. And and I think what I don't get from the movie that I totally get from the book is that Aragorn is as much of a like magic user as like anyone else in this in this crew, um, yeah. in the sense that when he confronts sauron through the palantir he shows him a false vision and that's something that i had never really considered (laughs) from his character
1: well the whole thing is like the palantir like they can only show the truth like you can't truly lie through the palantir but you can if you can master it to your will you can bend the truth a little bit
0: this, like, mastery is what I'm missing from the movie. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, I mean, it, it's really interesting because, I mean, even though as powerful as Sauron is, one of the Maiar, um, he's still not master of these stones. Right. Truly. Like right. Aragorn is. Now it still takes a heavy toll on him to come face to face with Sauron. Yeah, um, clearly. <laughs> but he does master the stone and is able to not succumb to Sauron in a way that yeah. Saruman did.
0: Right, absolutely. So uh,
1: that automatically tells you a little bit of Aragorn's power. Yeah, And um,
0: he declares that they need to travel the path of the dead in order to take their next step on their their mission.
1: Yeah. And and, well, I just want to talk a little bit about what his confrontation with Sauron was like, because I think we need to keep in mind at this point, Sauron doesn't know any of the heirs of Isildur are alive.
0: No. Yeah.
1: It is a doubt that has always been gnawing at him. Uh, They know they destroyed the line of Anarion and Gondor, the Isildur's brother. The king's line was destroyed. The Witch King killed the last king. Now, the Witch King aided in the destruction of the Northern Kingdom. But whereas the kingdom was lost, the line endured. But Sauron doesn't know this, and it's always been bugging him. And now here is his worst fear. The heir of Isildur is alive. Mm -hmm. He's rallying all of his foes together. Mm Mm-hmm. And Aragorn makes him think that he's holding this secret power, which Sauron assumes is the One Ring. Um, Because as we know from Gandalf in previous chapters, he says that Sauron doesn't think that any of these people would want to destroy the ring. That thought has not entered into his mind.
0: His biggest fear is that someone will use it against him. And
1: now again, the heir of this bloodline that he has been at war with for Thousands of years. Right. Throughout the third, second, even back to the first age, when he was just Morgoth's lieutenant, he was humbled and defeated by Luthien, the elf princess, Mm -hmm. who is uh, Aragorn's foremother. So he has a big beef with this bloodline, and he has only ever been defeated by this bloodline. Right. And they're still alive. (laughs) And he's out there, and he has the one ring, is what Sauron thinks. So this is why he freaks out. And before, if he would have just waited and gathered all his armies no one would have been able to withstand him.
0: No, but he jumps the gun and he immediately decides to make a stand and, and send his second out.
1: Which coincides exactly as Frodo and Sam are sneaking into Mordor. Right. Um, which is so convenient. It's very good. It's almost constructed by the gods. <laughs> um, this whole plan. Yeah. This is one of Sauron's biggest mistakes. Yeah. And one of the greatest victories of the... Um, the heroes, I think this is a a awesome moment in Aragorn's development as a character because ever since Gandalf died, remember he was always like, I wish Gandalf was here, just tell me what to do. And then ever since Gandalf came back, he's been telling him what to do and they've been listening, like, you know, uh, going to Théoden and the Battle of Helm's Deep and going up to Saruman, like, they've just been like, all right, we put our faith in the White Rider. Right. Um, But before Gandalf left, the one piece of advice he gave to Aragorn was don't look in the stone. The time is not yet ripe, and as soon as Gandalf leaves and Aragorn hooks up with his homeboys from back right. home, he's immediately like, "Wait, I'm—I I have the right to—I own this. these
0: stones. These are my stones." Uh,
1: he's like, "With all due respect to Gandalf, I'm going to make my own decision here." Yeah, and, and it's, it's the right decision. Gandalf was 100%. wrong. He, he should like. Th- now this is a very risky move. And it barely gives him enough time, which is why they have to use the Paths of the Dead now, yeah, um, to uh, get to Southern Gondor to fight off those uh, that fleet that's building up. But it is very um, now our hero has to make his journey through the Underworld, essentially, and. Uh, I I love this part. Yeah, I just it's so I, eerie.
0: I think what I I was missing from, of course, the movies was just this idea of Sauron's folly. Uh, you know, the movies present the eventual victory as such a triumph of the the people of the Fellowship and you know the people of Gondor, the people of Rohan. Um, when such as we've talked about in literally every episode, is the uh self-defeating quality right. of evil in tolkien's war In his world. desire
1: to crush aragorn and gondor yeah he has given frodo and sam the opening to basically sneak into Mordor. in
0: what everyone else is feeling is the 11th hour he fucks up and it, yeah it's it like and he was so
1: close to like absolute domination. absolute mastery yeah, yeah and um yeah it's just i think it's great
0: yeah, I totally agree.
1: And I, th- I think we really need to just keep in mind this is all due to Aragorn just totally dismissing the advice of someone he's trusted his whole life. Absolutely, and and becoming his own man. Yeah, this is this
0: is his moment accepting to his embark into his kinghood.
1: Exactly. And so, yeah, in the past, it is sort of like, oh, you want to lead these people, but like you can't even lead like the rest of the fellowship, right? Okay. Um, (laughs) Oh, you're the chosen one? But now he's really, I think, proved himself as worthy in this. um, But yeah, so he rides back through Rohan and meets up with Eowyn before he takes the paths of the (laughs) dead.
0: Full stop, because like... I know
1: you've been waiting for this. This
0: is my screed. (laughs) So, the last time we came up with Eowyn, I, I had a lot to say about how frustrated I was with the fact that Arwen, the main romantic interest of Aragorn, is relegated to the appendix. Right. Meanwhile, we have a great meet-cute between Aragorn and Aowen, And I'm sorry, everyone. This is what I love. Yeah, I I, I, I I, hated that. Now we are getting a great amount of tension between Aowen and Aragorn. Aragorn comes back. He says... Hey, like, we're going to stay here, you know, eat some food, get ready. We're going on the, the paths of the dead. And she basically just, like, prostrates herself emotionally um, and tries to make him stay
1: or go to battle. Or, like, well, yeah, let her come with him.
0: Yeah, let her join his party of Legolas and Gimli on the paths of the dead and do so valiantly she's tired of staying at home she's tired of the concept of, of being a woman and kind of keeping the home safe even though what she's doing is very valiant leading people to safety and stuff like that
1: mm-hmm. um
0: she's not content with it as a shield maiden she knows she can do more and um i love eowyn in the scene i think she's extremely compelling very interesting um As I've probably talked about before, you know, she's one of the few, she's like the second... Big female character we've gotten after Galadriel, and nothing against Galadriel, but Galadriel's pretty like above it all, right? Yeah, yeah. We we don't see that she's like dealing with her femininity in the same way that Aowen is. Well, yeah,
1: and I I love how Eowyn just straight up calls out Aragorn on his like yeah, ma- male privilege. Absolutely. And she's just like all you're sa- all you're saying is just like a mask. Like this stay guy at is home. Like <laughs> like essentially underneath it all is like you're a woman and stay at home.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, And
1: doesn't really have much to say back to that.
0: So she's like this, like not just feminine or female character, but like a feminist character that we, we come across in this world. And she's very ready to uh, come up against it. And through so many words she basically tells Aragorn that she's in love with him uh you know she... she's not
1: that subtle about it. <laughs>
0: yeah she's not that very subtle um but you know one of the big ways is that she says like the only reason that Gimli and Legolas follow you on this doomed path is
1: because they believe in you because they love thee <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah exactly which is like right after she's like asked to go with him and yeah um i i just love this part i i love eowyn and i i i think she might be my favorite character at at this point in the story i think what she's what Mm -hmm. she is doing right here and what she chooses to do um is you know it's just the most interesting to me uh basically everyone else is on these like very faded paths and very like I am the representative of my people. So I am going forth to fight this war. Mm-hmm. And she's this person who doesn't have any responsibility to the journey of the ring, to the defeating of Sauron. And she's the person who steps up to it and, and You're chooses right. that of her own free will.
1: Yeah. And uh, another thing that I also like keeping in mind with Aowen is that along with Pippin, she's the youngest uh, character in the story there is this sort of like youthful element to these characters that we have all these old characters in the story, Gandalf and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and even Frodo's like an elder hobbit to the rest of the hobbits. But yeah, I I love that we kind of get these uh, younger characters that are facing down the end of the world. I don't know. I just love that we get these sort of these older characters like Theoden that they're kind of seeing like, this is probably going to be my last uh, hoorah. And then we get these younger characters who are really stepping out into the world for the first time, choosing, you know, like, again, like death, like most of these people are choosing That's kind of the only option.
0: Well, and I think it's very interesting. She's a perfect foil for Arwen, who is an immortal being who eventually chooses death to be with Aragorn. She is so vibrant. She is so lively. She's nothing if, like, she's just the definition of human woman. And um, I, I love her for that. The very cynical side of me that understands that these books are written by human people and uh Tolkien was a human uh can very clearly see that Arwen was a last minute addition to the yeah. Lord of the Rings and it's
1: to be really reminiscent of Luthien and it's v-
0: exact, and, and I mean, honestly uh- it's, sloppy. it's sloppy I think it's sloppy I think it's sloppy to put your main romance for your fucking hero in the appendices I think that's a problem and like I know that might be like a bad take
1: but I I think it's just Tolkien was such a slave to again how he was writing these stories which the the chroniclers of the Lord of the Rings are the hobbits it's Mary Pippin Frodo and Sam um if Aragorn was the guy writing this book I'm sure Arwen would have been much more like that appendix would it wouldn't be in the appendix it would be in the main part of the story right it's in the appendix because it's written by the Hobbits and they don't find out about Aragorn and Arwen until the end of the story.
0: But just like what, what absolute, like, yeah, like, uh, you I get know, what you're saying. Yeah. It, that is such an obsession with a uh, strict narrator, you know, absolutism. And, and I think that's respectable to some extent, but when you look at the scenes that we see between Eowyn and aragorn they just have such great chemistry they have great chemistry and what we're actually seeing is basically the entire structure of what would then influence every fantasy romance after it and i i think as as a fan of modern fantasy romance i'm just like extremely frustrated that we just don't get to see kind of these things in balance and instead you know he's trying to to fit the Silmarillion in a published work, which I understand, yeah. you know, that was the story he loved.
1: So then after, you know, the final rejection of Eowyn, um, they go on to pass the, uh, the door into the paths of the dead under this mountain. And I just love how much this reminds me of a lot of old Greek mythology, like the hero passing into the underworld. It reminds me also a lot of like what's going on with Frodo and them, you know, they pass into the Valley of Minas Morgul it's like all our protagonists are now going through this, uh, underworld sort of stage of the story, um, and, and coming out the other side changed. I, I just love how eerie this is. I, I love whenever Tolkien leans into the horror aspects of yes. his world. And just like the lore, the history of these old oath breakers that they swore to a door they would fight against Sauron and then they didn't fight. <laughs> Did not. <laughs> and, um... And I think that's really interesting considering, like, what we've seen in Minas Tirith, that, like, they need help. But a lot of the people of Gondor have not answered the call because they're worried for themselves of the, in the southern fiefs, which is where Aragorn is now traveling to. And so it, it, there's almost the sense of history repeating itself. People not really going right. to fight. I love when they come out the other side and the, the ghosts are starting to gather to them mm-hmm. and they're passing through the fiefs. You know, the the people of Gondor say, Oh, the king of the dead are upon us. But it's almost like, are they talking about the king of the dead? Or are they talking about Aragorn who's commanding right, the king of the who's, dead?
0: Right, Yeah. And Aragorn
1: at this point has really been a symbol of hope. Um, literally his name growing up was Estelle, which means hope. Uh and really here he almost becomes this uh symbol of fear.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: commanding the armies of the dead. Uh he's
0: or just like doom in the in the in the Tolkien sense of like doom faded like yeah, yeah. just this like final ending.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just there's something very uh,
0: foreboding. <laughs> foreboding.
1: It also reminds me a lot of uh, Norse mythology, like the Wild Hunt.
0: Yeah, coming absolutely. down from oh, absolutely. the ghost riders
1: in the sky yeah. coming down. Um, yeah, I I think it's really neat. But then this you know the chapter ends before we really find out what happens with right. Aragorn. And then it cuts right back to Gondor. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and we're in a city besieged now. And yeah. I I love the sense in this. I love the siege of Gondor. Um, and I love the sense of slowly being more and more cut off and yeah. isolated. At a point where we don't know what's happening with Aragorn. We don't know what's happening with Frodo and Sam. And we're only seeing this from the point of view of like Pippin and like Denethor. Yeah. And Gandalf. This is when shit is really starting to go down right. in this chapter. We're reunited with Faramir.
0: Yeah, Faramir um, returns. This is where like
1: the, the two different story like, you know, after the breaking of the fellowship, you know, there's Ferdinand Sam in the East and everyone else in the West. Uh, and Faramir really connects these uh books here yeah. in this chapter.
0: Denethor, as much as I can respect him as a shrewd Machiavellian leader, is Probably the worst dad ever. Yeah,
1: he's he. I, that is where I think the movie version nailed him. He's <laughs> he's a dick to Boromir. Yeah,
0: he's pretty terrible, and um, definitely clearly had some favoritism for Boromir, and did not make that a secret.
1: Yeah, and I do want to dive into this a little bit more, which is expanded upon again in the appendices. I think there's a couple reasons for this. I think the most obvious one is. Um it's said that after Denethor's wife's death, Fenualas, he became more grim. And I think uh she died uh from complications after Faramir was born. Yeah. And so I mean, you know, we see this a lot in stories. Uh honestly, Denethor reminds me a lot of Tywin from Game of Thrones with Faramir being Tyrion. And then there's the beloved son Jamie, who yeah. reminds me more of Boromir. <laughs> Boromir. Um, yeah, exactly. So there's obviously that, but I, I want to go back even further. I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but when Aragorn was younger, he came to Gondor as a wandering knight under the guise of uh, you know, not revealing his true name. And he quickly climbed the ranks and became a close counselor to the steward at the time, Ecthelion, who was Denethor's father. And so Denethor and Thurongil, who was Aragorn, were in his like closest uh, circle of counselors. And the people loved Thurongil, and Echthelion loved Thurongil, um, and it says you know almost like family, like he was like a son and. Denethor was very jealous of him. And I think it's very heavily implied that he later found out that he was Erador, and He was right. the heir of a Isildur. Yeah. Which, I mean, kind of really does seem very deceptive to kind of come yeah. in and ingratiate yourself within the family Not of the stewards. to just like,
0: hey, I'm the heir of door. Like, I have, a, I have a rightful place here. So to
1: Denethor, this seems very duplicitous, I right. would assume. I mean, it's never said how he feels about it, but I would assume that would feel like a betrayal once he finds out the truth. This guy who's almost like a brother to him in the eyes of his father. Right. And it said that Ecthelion really kind of valued his advice at more than his own sons. And so you have these two guys that are like sons to him, and he favors one of them. And that sounds a lot like Denethor. <laughs> um, yeah. So he's definitely projecting a lot of his daddy issues onto Faramir. Um, but, I, you know, I can't help but feel for Denethor. Um, this guy comes from out of nowhere, and the people like him more. And your own dad likes him more?
0: Well, and it reflects what we know about Boromir as well from Faramir's exposition to Frodo and Sam, which is that Boromir could never understand why Denethor wasn't king. And and how many years would it take Denethor to become king from being a steward? And uh, I, I think, of course, you know, there's a clear lineage of like wanting more power than you technically have.
1: Although one thing I do find interesting is that they say that, you know, the blood of Numenor runs almost very true in Denethor and Faramir, but not in Boromir. Interesting. And we talked about that in the window of the West chapter where we can, you know, they talked about how Boromir was much more like the men of Rohan. Yeah. He was not like the high men of Middle-earth. He was much more like the middle men taking delight in just battle and not really lore. But Denethor and Faramir are much more... Of like, the, you know, they understand um, and respect the history and lineage of Numenor. But it, it's just so interesting to me that Denethor really doesn't like Faramir because honestly, they're more alike they're more similar. than Denethor and Boromir but are. But
0: it's hard to recognize yourself in someone, you know, like, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I to some extent that does make sense. While I was reading this section, um, Denethor is definitely a villain, but like a lowercase v villain. He's not the villain. He's just a villain. <laughs> and yeah. um, I
1: think almost the term uh, not anti hero, but anti villain. Yeah. From, it's like this guy could have been the hero,
0: but he's not. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, he reminds me a lot of uh, Shakespearean villains, like Macbeth is called to mind, and also Don John, um, where it's just like their grievances are pretty petty and they don't really have like a clear path towards uh success and also they have like an almost immediate comeuppance that is served within the the arc of the story uh which we're we're going to get into
1: but yeah as this chapter says the siege of gondor uh the army of the witch king that we saw uh leave minas morgul in the ferdin sam Mm -hmm. chapter has now arrived at minas tirith and, you know, they're encompassing the city and really playing a lot of, like, psychological warfare almost. It's dark. Yeah. Um, oh, that's another thing. The uh, the <laughs> dawnless day. Yeah. Um, the storm of Mordor has just grown and cover, blotted out the sun. And so they're just living in this perpetual apocalyptic nighttime. And the armies of Mordor have come and the Nazgul are flying all around, crying their voices of death uh making men despair and they're launching the heads of their uh captives into the city and really trying to break the spirit of the city yeah and um
0: and they do they succeed with denethor
1: well and one thing I, I love about this whole chapter is how much um the people of gondor look to rohan yeah and it's this recurring theme throughout all these chapters is like will the people of rohan come like well we send out writers and blah 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 and um and we saw a little bit of that earlier in the uh, passing of the Grey Company. But it's this big question that's hanging on everyone's mind. Will Rohan come? Will they come? And we hear about these ever-worsening conditions outside. Yeah. And, you know, it finally uh, gets to the point where they're like, well, the North Road is overrun. Uh, even if Rohan was on its way, they can't come now. So we're on our own. Yeah. And... Um, and, and and during all of this, um, you know, Faramir has been out, you know, on the field of the Pelennor right. doing things right. and he gets injured and he comes back and
0: he's unconscious.
1: Yeah. And, and Denethor goes up into his tower and they see these flashing lights and he comes down and he's like a man changed. And where have we heard that before? Yeah. Um, <gasps> right. With Aragorn. Yeah,
0: it's very clear he's, he's had some time with the Palantir and is definitely under the influence of Sauron at this point.
1: And uh yeah, as we'll later find out, this was the breaking point. Up until this moment, he has been going toe to toe with Sauron, like Aragorn did. Like, let's not get it twisted. He was, no. yeah, he was doing exactly what Aragorn. He's did.
0: not a dotard You know, he's he's. I think that's actually a word they use of like he's yeah. not that. And and this. Well, Gandalf is the point... says
1: when you are doted you will die.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, and only
1: then. Yeah. Um, and.
0: Um, But at this point, he's pretty fatalistic. He thinks that Faramir is dead. uh, Well, we see
1: something has snapped within Denethor. Yeah. Um, He has been, I think since Bormir died, he's been going up and looking in the Palantir, trying to get intel, trying to get the edge on Sauron. And he has not succumbed to him yet. No. Which is, you know, like we said with Denethor, quite the feat. Again, Saruman did, And Denethor hasn't until... He thinks Faramir is dying. Which is,
0: like, really interesting. As as shitty as he is to Faramir, I, I do think that he sees that Faramir not only is his last heir, but, like, is him. Yeah, you know, well, it's just, he's an it's, extension of himself. Yeah,
1: it's just he really discounts Faramir until it's too late.
0: Yeah, and, and we see his... Like I've it's said not before. is the thing it's, no, it's exa- not too late i know exactly it's not too <laughs> it's late so it's so um, sad but it. it is really sad i i think you know we see all of the faults of this kind of uh you know spicy character of denethor and then we see them immediately come to fruition in this chapter where he is regretting how terrible he was to yeah. faramir he um
1: well, before Farmer rode away, you know, Gandalf says like, "Your father loves you," and before this oh, is over, he'll realize it. Sad. That part was so sad. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and this is that happening. And yeah, it's just, exactly. It's
0: and it's really sad. And and I think what is so sad is that Denethor doesn't come to this realization with like hope to continue on. He comes to this realization with absolute fatalism and and a, yeah. a readiness to die.
1: Yeah. And I think this really gets to a part of one of Tolkien's major themes is that um, just never despair. Yeah, the loss um, of hope
0: is the absolute death of your purpose. One,
1: I think one of the best quotes that sums up this whole uh, thing is in the Council of Elrond. Um, Gandalf says, despair is for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. Um Denethor is now at a point where he's think I see the end beyond all doubt. Yeah, because I have looked into the palantir. I see, and honestly, I also want to talk about what he's been shown by Sauron. He's been shown the fleets of the Corsair reinforcements, and he's like, "There's again, the palantir cannot lie." So he's seeing all these fleets uh, waiting in reserve, and he's like, "Well, there's no way we're like already with the Witch King's army. It was going to be tough." Yeah. Especially since Rohan cannot come, right? There's no way. But as we'll find out, Rohan can come. Yeah, and the fleets are bringing not their damnation, but their salvation.
0: I just have one thing to say as we move into this next chapter about Rohan, um, and hopefully this will be the last reference to the Peter Jackson movies I make in this in this episode. But in the movies, it's presented that Rohan might not come because. They might have beef. Uh, you know, where was Gondor when the Westfold fell? And this is such a bullshit pulled out of the ass of the writers of those movies. Like, I, I just don't understand. In a in a in a story that already has so much drama, why do you have to make more drama?
1: No, it's it's very contrived. It's and, so uh, fucked
0: yeah. up. And like, so anyway, I just have to say that like It's crazy to me as someone who's watched the movies and is just now reading the books that when Rohan is approached of like, hey, we need you at Gondor, like we are going to be like really fucked up. Theoden is basically like, of course, we would ride to Gondor, even if it didn't trouble us as
1: we have this ancient alliance. Like, why would we not honor that?
0: Yeah, exactly. We we have an alliance. Of course we would come.
1: There's just already so much other things going on in the story. I don't know why you need to add like a... <laughs> no, it's well,
0: like... Well, you
1: didn't come to our so why would we come to yours? And like, uh, and and Dinothor is all like, uh, well, Rohan hasn't been very helpful, so why should I ask for their help? No, it's, bu-
0: it's bullshit. It's and- like,
1: obviously these people would be asking for each other's yeah, help. Yeah,
0: exactly. In the text, it is so clear that all of these human men are backed up against a wall and they know that they have no choice but to work together yeah and never mind like a choice they are allies anyway
1: going into Boromir's backstory too we know he's been very friendly with the people of Rohan he was defending them at the council of Elrond uh he was friends with Theodrid Theoden mourns Boromir so, like, yeah, it's it's very apparent, especially through Boromir, who we've established as much more like the men of Rohan, that there is this alliance between Gondor and Rohan that just, like, there's there's no reason they wouldn't aid each other. Yeah, I can't say I'm a fan of that in the movie.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it's pretty bad.
1: Finally, at the end of this, we get the leader of this army, the Witch King, kind of comes mm-hmm. forth. You know, this isn't necessarily the same Witch King we've seen earlier in the story, like at Weathertop, like it's the same character, obviously, but Sauron has now kind of, in, you know, this is when he's making his big stroke of war. Um, He's fully putting forth his main characters or his main uh, soldiers on the field of battle. And he's really put forth a lot of his own power into the witch king. This is probably the closest we get in the story to seeing Sauron, As a physical threat on the field of battle. Um, Obviously, he's not coming forth himself. He's still sitting up in his tower. But um, the Witch King is now much more powerful than we've seen him before. And as being a ringwraith, we know that he has no will of his own. Mm -hmm. His will is Sauron's will. So he is as much of just an extension of Sauron as anyone. Especially at this point when he's been imbued with this power. And even Gandalf fears to face him. And so he uh, he comes up, and I-, I love this part. They bring out Grond, this battering ram, which uh, is a little Silmarillion reference. Grond was the name of uh, the war hammer of Morgoth, Sauron's master. Gotcha. And I think it's hinted that Grond, the battering ram, was forged in the smithies of Mordor when spells were laid on it. I, I like to think that Sauron made Grond. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a craftsman, he made the one ring in Mount Doom, I like to think that he also fa- he forged Grand in Mount Doom mm. um, a- as a kind of uh, homage to his old master. And so they're using this to batter down the gates of Minas Tirith, and Gandalf is now like, alright, this is it, the confrontation between me and the Witch King. I've been dreading this, but you know, I'm gonna try my best. And he did fight him in the ring race on Weathertop, mm-hmm. but again, now he's been imbued with greater power. And the Witch King, uh, using spells and gronds, breaks the doors of Minas Tirith that have never been broken before, and he rides in, and uh, I, I love this confrontation. He, he says, like, he's like, old fool, do you not know death when you see it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Witch King, he's, he is almost this uh, horseman of the apocalypse. Yeah, he is death absolutely. upon his horse, and he lifts up his sword and flames run down the blade. Uh, it's just great imagery. And like I said, throughout all of this uh, melting despair, everyone's asking, where is Rohan? And then it finally gets to the point where they're like, Rohan can't come. Right. And and Faramir's dying or dead. And, you know, and everyone's like losing hope. And then suddenly horns start blowing. Right. And I, if, I think in the last episode, I said, you know, the end of the two towers, that line, Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy, is like one of the great ending lines you know and that's the end of that book but this is just the end of a chapter however i still feel that last line rohan had come at last it is such a cathartic moment and it is uh, i don't know that line always just hits me so hard after all of this despair and wondering about where rohan is
0: i do want to jump back and i hate to do it because this is absolutely going to be our longest episode yet um but i mean for good reason there's a lot of stuff that happens in these chapters um but i do want to say you know in this chapter we do see pippin again rise to the occasion he sees that denethor is out of his mind and um in his insistence of placing himself and faramir on a pyre and ordering people to bring fire to it uh pippin realized this is this is not he is no longer the lord of gondor
1: yeah he well, cannot be taken as well that. i love how honor bound so many of the uh minister guards know. are and they're just like well he wants us to this kill him is what he wants to he's do the lord okay and like and pippin's just like you don't have a lord <laughs> like he's lost his mind anyway yeah what this reminds me of is in the u.s constitution the 25th amendment yeah <laughs> of like uh like when the president is unfit for office yeah right. to be removed and pippin is almost trying to enact the 25th he's like yeah. Denathor is not the lord anymore no he has no, no, lost don't, his mind he, he
0: he repeatedly says you no longer have a lord of gondor like if anyone needs yeah know, exactly. but um,
1: <laughs> yeah so uh yeah it's pretty pretty dire
0: yeah, and... absolutely. Um, and he does really well in in this moment. I think you know. Again, we're and he seeing... he gets
1: Baragond on his. He's like, "Hey, Barragon, stop this shit." Yeah, <laughs> um... like
0: no one bring any fire into this chamber. Like, absolutely not. You cannot. Like, Faramir is not dead. Denethor is just gone, and like, we we can save them both. There's no reason for us to yes, despair.
1: yes, yeah.
0: And finally, this brings us to the ride of the Rohirrim, which. We actually just listened to a recording of this today of Tolkien reading it. Can you talk a little bit about the the whole, like, history about that?
1: Yeah, so if you look online, you can probably find an audio recording of Tolkien reading the ride of the Rohirrim. There's a really great story behind it. Apparently during this point of writing The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien had kind of reached a stall, and he was really depressed, And was sort of wondering, I think he was, and he was reaching, I think, a lot of um, issues with his publishers. um, And he was wondering, is this even good? Does anyone care? And he had this friend who had a uh, tape recorder, which was a kind of new technology at the time. And his friend was like, well, how about you take your favorite passage that you've written and you record yourself? saying it out loud and then you listen to it back and then you tell me if you think it's any good and um you know Tolkien was fairly distrustful of technology so he he says uh I think the Lord's Prayer over the tech which I, I think is also recorded and you can listen to him saying that over this tape recorder and then he records this Ride of the Row and he listens to it back and his, his friend's like, well, what do you think? And he's like, no, yeah, this is quite good. <laughs> um, and he's like, thank you for like, ironically, this piece of technology has given me the faith to continue my work.
0: My anti-technology story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah.
1: I've always loved that. I think that's great. But, um, but yeah, the last chapter ends with like kind of this almost impossibility happening. Like, They've set up this uh, story in which the roads have been cut off. Rohan cannot come. But then somehow, Rohan has come. Yeah. Um, So now we're going back in time a little bit and explaining how that happened. How they're able to bypass the road um, uh, from Rohan to Gondor. Um, So now we're cutting back to Mary's point of view.
0: Right. And Mary has joined this host of the Rohirrim. um, Mainly by riding with, who we know is... Eowyn.
1: What? I... No, he's with Durnhelm. <laughs> um, who is um, just a new character. Uh... Which
0: I, I... One of my favorite points of this whole section is when uh, Mary gets the chills by looking into the eye, the gray eyes of a, a young soldier who is... Has resigned himself to die. And that, of course, is Durnhelm, who he later rides with.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, as anyone who's seen any of the movies you know (laughs) we know we know it's eowyn yeah and that's something that you can only kind of keep secret in a book you can't really do that in a movie movie. (laughs) so apparently
0: uh, not i mean i think you could but not the way they do it
1: and well they didn't go in the movies into the dawnless day and how everything is in darkness at this point so i think that could be easier to sell if it's uh in the dark (laughs) um
0: I just want to complain for one moment. I said the last time was the last time, but it's not. Not including the Dawnless Day.
1: I think it's a big mistake.
0: It is a huge fuck up in these movies. I cannot believe it. unites
1: it. all the characters. Also, Frodo and Sam. A- Merry Pippin, Aragorn and Gimli. Also just like, like,
0: what a cool thing. And at first I was like, maybe they didn't want to record it too dark. The entire movie of Fellowship is like in a lot darkness. of it's in darkness. So yeah. like there, there's no reason for it. It, it. It's really upsetting because it is such a clear characteristic of these scenes that we we have been talking about is that they wake up and there's no day. <laughs>
1: well, it, it just adds to the apocalyptic feeling of Absolutely. the Siege of Gondor, where it's just like if Gondor falls, the world of Men falls. Yeah, and um. Yeah, and that's like there is no light right. in that world, and uh, I yeah, I think it was a big mistake not to include it. So Mary wakes up, and he's hearing these this drumming in the hills, and uh, he's stumbling around in the dark, and he overhears this conversation between Theoden and the the wild men of the woods.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Wow. There's so much left out of this very cool the wild men are very cool and uh worthy of being in a movie
1: oh yeah i think so i mean
0: it's just ridiculous that the reason that the the rohirim can make it through is like taken out of most people's understanding of the story
1: yeah well i mean just uh, the arrival of the Rohirrim is such a moment that is like they're delivered but like I think the reason that moment works so well is because it was an impossibility. Right. Because the people have gone to, we seeing it from their point of view, and they're like, they cannot come. The road is overtaken. So, like, as the reader, you're like, oh, shit. Well, they're just like, they're on their own now. Right. But then they, despite all odds, they show up. And right. so, um, yeah, there's this secret side road that cuts out a loop of <laughs> yeah. the journey that they're able to bypass the guards and uh, I, I just I, I really like this. It, it just adds another layer uh, to the cultural history of the peoples of Middle Earth. Um, there are these more primitive people, but they're good, which yeah. is something we don't see a lot of. No. The primitive peoples are always typically more susceptible to Sauron. evil. yeah. Um, which is you know, a huge critique of Lord of the Rings as a very eurocentric work which makes me very surprised that in modern hollywood they would not try to highlight this <laughs> i part. know
0: and we'll, we'll definitely talk more about that after we've gone through the text we, we're going to definitely have an episode that's sort of a uh a wrap up of all of the critique and analysis that we've had so far and 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 sort of getting ourselves out of the text more of it as a living document um that is examined by different d- generations uh yeah. from year to year uh but i i i totally agree with you i think that this is a moment that i don't understand why hollywood n- didn't take advantage of it and um i i guess we can blame that on the early 2000s and
1: <laughs> yeah uh and, and i have my critiques of the peter jackson movies but you know who was a huge lord of the rings fan that a lot of this work made it into his work is um, actually George Lucas with Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. And um, sometimes I almost maintain that George Lucas nailed Lord of the Rings in Star Wars better than Peter Jackson did.
0: Uh, I would agree with that.
1: And uh, I think we see in Return of the Jedi, not Return of the King. Um, <laughs>
0: oh, my God. Wow. Wait. <laughs> Sorry. Give me a moment. No, yeah. I, I- think- don't know why that just clicked for me, but fucked up. Okay, go
1: yeah, ahead. Anyway, um, the Ewoks are the wild men of the woods. Right. Remember, they're looking at the, uh, oh, this is the generator to the Death Star. There's no way we can get to it. The Ewoks are like, we know a secret path how to get there. Totally. Um, they're the wild men.
0: <laughs> I think my favorite part of this section with the wild men is that they had an offer's friendship for their... Um, their good deeds in this section and they're they're basically like um, all you need to do is not fucking hunt us
1: yeah well <laughs> we
0: just like oh
1: it, god in a, like a very quickly throws an unflattering light on the river here absolutely
0: that, it, it's a very to me of course being an American it reminds me of a, a very much native indigenous American yeah. and like and, settler European on American soil yeah
1: yeah totally but I mean they have a common enemy so yeah. they're just like let's uh, work unite together. and um
0: <laughs> we don't need to be friends just like don't fucking don't kill us don't kill
1: us please um and um and we'll see this actually come back a little bit once Aragorn becomes king and kind of how he rules as king we'll see the relationship with the wild men come back into play but um but yeah, so they show them this old path and the Rohirrim are able to show up in just barely in time. I yeah. mean, the city's on fire, but um but the end of this chapter is just um metal. It's pretty fucking metal. <laughs> um especially Theoden. Yeah. Um I love how almost inhuman he is portrayed in this, because uh, first they say that he, when he's addressing his riders as they're about to charge into the city, he cries aloud in a voice louder than they have ever heard a mortal man achieve yeah. before. Then he goes to his banner bearer and gets a horn, and he blows a blast on it so loud, the horn bursts asunder. Right. <laughs> and then he charges and despite the fact that he's an you know he's an old man on his horse yeah. and, you know, and there are a bunch uh, around a bunch of experienced horsemen right no one can overtake him in the field this old man is just leading the charge and then he's compared to ormei the vala in mm-hmm. you know the literal a literal god and I mean this is when Théoden transcends into myth. Yeah. Um this is when he is, you know, not just He's uh, no
0: longer the king. He's just He's this legendary
1: figure of Rohan yeah. his Rohirrim history. Like the ride of the Rohirrim and this also cu- ties back to when the Rohirrim first came to the aid of Gondor. This is how they were given the land of Rohan. Yeah. Um uh back with uh and I love that it was Aoral the Young. And now Theoden the Old yeah. is what he was called, um, and there's these two epic rides that are here where they come to uh, the salvation of Gondor, and um, this is what Theoden's arc has all been leading up to. He going back to the voice of Saruman, he you know he says a, a lesser son of greater sires am I. Mm-hmm. He is a man that has felt that he has not lived up to his ancestors he has led his people astray and he only has a limited amount of time left in these l- latter days. And he is willing to give his life and ride to the final death. If it means receiving the redemption he thinks he needs. Um, and uh, yeah, the way this has all been built up, I just, I get chills every time I read it. it it's really, it's one of the like, those really good. epic moments of the yeah, book. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. At this time, Mary is present in the host and he is sort of like, oh, what the fuck do I do? I'm a hobbit. I guess I'm going to do whatever I was always going to plan to do, which is kind of uh, handicap my riding soldier, which is Dernhelm, and fight as much as I can. So... Mary is there, and that's basically where we leave off at the end of this section.
1: Just to like prep going into the next section, we've seen Frodo and Sam obviously going on the most important part of this quest to destroy the ring. Um, Pippin has been sent to the front line of the war, and and now we know he plays like this very crucial role in saving the future steward of Gondor. And Merry feels very, of the four hobbits, the most left behind. Whereas in the beginning, in the old four, he was really taking the lead and stuff. And now he's really just been left behind by everybody and feeling unwanted and unneeded. And um, that's all about to change. Um, I, I, think, I think it's really great that despite being one of the most unneeded characters um, and most felt cast aside, he plays one of the most important roles in this war uh and is coming up in the next section um
0: yeah a- absolutely i would say as much as i talked about deus ex machina for gandalf through the entirety of the hobbit and a lot of the fellowship it, it seems like so much of that has been imbued with all of the characters now you know everything is happening at the right time at the right place we're we're seeing sort of everything unfold that has been planned before
1: yeah everything is just coming to fruition here yeah um Like I said, there's this sort of logic that Tolkien was working with with the characters. And I think all of this was like him uh, so far just, you know, feeling things out and establishing who these characters are. But now as the war is reaching its climax, all these characters are now on their locked, appointed paths leading to their inevitable conclusions. It's just exciting.
0: I'm ready for it. I'm very excited by this section. Mm -hmm. So... If you haven't already subscribe to our podcast on anywhere that you get your podcasts, you can also follow us on Twitter at halfaswellpod.
1: Or you can find us at halfaswellpodcast.com where we have a lot of things like our reading schedule and according to that reading schedule next week we will be discussing chapters 6 through 10, the battle of the Pelennor fields through the black gate opens.
0: I'm Sage
1: And I'm William.
0: And this is Half
1: Half as as well. Well.